Welcome to the Adventures in Growth podcast, where we share the stories of exceptional founders and leaders in startups and tech. We dive into the secrets to their success, operating a game-changing tech companies, and we share their playbooks of how they've built their careers, led outstanding teams, and designed the life they want. Subscribe to this podcast newsletter at adventuresingrowth.co to receive exclusive weekly insights to supercharge your professional and personal growth. This week, we're speaking with Jen Yi, a writer, comedian, and expert in learning and development who, after attaining her MBA at the Kellogg School of Management, honed her experience at hyper-growth startup HelloFresh. True to the ethos of adventures and growth, Jen has had multiple careers, having been a founder, a journalist, and an innovation consultant. She's now a fractional leader in learning and development, advising high-growth startups to help employees perform better, feel happier, and be more engaged at work. In this episode, we cover a range of topics, including switching careers, building teams and culture, and leading with influence. Jen has extraordinary insights into coaching and mentorship and the difference between the two, and we take a deep dive into what it takes to master both. Welcome to Adventures in Growth. Jen, welcome to Adventures in Growth. What are you up to these days? Hey, I am actually running a leadership and organizational development consulting firm. So I am partnering with chief people officers and people and senior leadership teams to improve their talent management, organizational design, help them with scalable growth and kind of build the systems to support that. Awesome. That's great. Well, we've got a great show lined up. I think we're excited to talk to you a little bit about number of different topics, but we're going to dive in and Andy's going to sort of lead off, but we're going to talk to you today about mentorship and coaching, which I think will be a great conversation. Yeah. Maybe just to kick that off. Thanks, Dan. You know, can you maybe describe a little bit about how you think about mentorship versus coaching? I know oftentimes they're almost used interchangeably. Certainly they're related, but love to hear your thoughts just generally on how to think about those two areas. Yeah, it's a great question. And I think you're right. People often use those words as synonyms and they're actually really super distinct. You know, mentorship, as I think about it, is a relationship between someone who has more experience in a certain field or practice or skill who is mentoring or sharing some of that experience with someone who's kind of earlier in their career or, you know, earlier in the practice of whatever that thing is they're mentoring them in. And coaching is actually a lot more listening and a lot less telling. So coaching is really enabling someone to get to an answer that's already inside themselves by asking them provocative, open-ended questions and really kind of guiding them toward a resolution or an answer. And I think those are super different. People sometimes tend to mentor when they should be coaching and vice versa, and that's something that I'm really passionate about, kind of helping leadership teams and leaders make a distinction between. And in thinking and, you know, in thinking about kind of those very distinct and thanks for kind of breaking that down, you know, what's your what's maybe taking them individually? What is your what's kind of been your favorite thing about being involved with these programs, you know, professionally, either, you know, a leader or as, a, as an advisor? Yeah, I mean, I think that to be a great leader you know, you should have experience doing both of these things and also understanding the distinction between them. We, in my most recent full-time role, we set up the first 
coaching program where leaders were being coached, coached by external coaches and mentoring inside the organization where those same leaders were providing mentorship to more junior employees to, you know, in order to give them sort of sponsorship through the organization, help them think a little bit about different career challenges they were having internally. And so, you know, you had these leaders who were both getting the experience of sharing what they had learned over time. And they were also getting coached by professional coaches who were helping them to work through challenges that they had not yet, you know, experienced and being asked the right questions instead of just being told by their manager or the C-suite what to do. These coaches were helping them, again, find the answers that were already probably inside of them that they just hadn't, didn't have the confidence or guidance to get to. Yeah, really interesting. It's what made you realize the importance of mentorship and coaching when it came to your career? You talked about an experience you had at Time Out. I'd love you to sort of expand on that because that seemed to have a really big impact on how you viewed that, that approach to mentorship and coaching. Yeah, th- thanks for asking that. I actually, I feel really fortunate because the very first internship that I ever had, I was a senior in high school and I I landed an internship at Time Out New York Magazine, which is kind of an entertainment listings magazine in a lot of major metros around the world. And I was the assistant to the editor-in-chief there. And she was a mentor without telling me. I mean, she was definitely my manager. I did tasks for her, but One of the things she said to me very early on in my internship there was she said, you know, I never want to hire anyone who doesn't want my job. And it opened up this world for me of, oh, like someone who I would potentially replace one day. I mean, obviously, there was a huge gap between my 17-year-old self and her being an editor-in-chief. But someone who I could eventually replace one day is actually trying to help me do that and grow into, you know, additional responsibility, additional leadership skills. And I feel like that is very counter to what I encountered along the rest of my career in terms of competitiveness and this idea that there's just a zero sum when you're looking at, you know, advancing at an organization or in a career. Like this woman basically said, like, I want people to have the ambition to do what I'm doing. And I want to mentor them to do that. And that has really guided my own philosophy about that throughout my whole career. It's fascinating you mentioned that because I had an experience very early on in my career where I was taking over the role of someone else who was similar level to me. They were basically being promoted and I was taking their role as the more junior person. And they went out of their way to make sure they didn't teach me the job because they were told if they did that, they might make themselves look bad if someone did it better. And that was so that was like the antithesis of what you're talking about. You know, that notion of we're competing against each other for this role and I mustn't help elevate you. And I'd love to talk to you about that, your experience with this, because I think you've identified at HelloFresh the importance of mentorship and you worked very hard with them to entrench that in the organization. Can you tell us a little bit about what you did there as part of those initiatives to do that and why that's important? So, so programmatically, so, so just to back up a little bit, you know, one of the things that I was charged to do was to, you know, elevate the level of management and leadership at a company that had grown, just had just gone gangbusters in the years prior to the pandemic. And then during the pandemic, when access to fresh food straight at your door was something that everybody wanted. And so, you know, you had this organization that had gone 
public in four years from its inception. And all of the leaders at that organization had just gone through growth so quickly. You know, they'd gone from being individual contributors to senior vice presidents very quickly. And so one of the things that I was charged to do was to think about how do we up-level people's leadership, get them the experience they need that they normally would have gone, they would have learned by going through the rites of passage of management, right? Like managing some people, managing people who manage people, managing a function, managing an enterprise. People just went from like individual contributor <laughs> to managing an enterprise. And like, it was crazy. And so one of the component or a few of the components that we pieced together that people needed was this experience we talked about earlier, which is they needed to have the experience of mentoring younger folks and helping those, uh, helping groom those folks to become one day leaders at the organization, but they also needed coaching themselves. And so those were two two kind of legs of the stool of our leadership development program that we put into place. The third leg of the stool was an executive education program run out of a business school in New York City. And so, you know, there was a classroom component, a mentoring component, and a being coached component. And I I think that felt the most well-rounded kind of program to really develop a leader that we could come up with. It it couldn't just be a one-to-many classroom situation. It couldn't just be getting an individual coach for a bunch of people. And it couldn't just be like, you know, telling them to go out and mentor and go forth and spread their knowledge. It had to be sort of all three. And I I really loved doing that. And I'm not sure that answered your question, but that was how we developed it. Yeah, totally. But and so I guess the question is, there's, you know, as you mentioned, there's the three legs of the stool, there's the classroom, there's the sort of coaching aspect and the mentorship aspect. How what does that look like in practice, when you're actually making sure that the organization adopts those things and sort of really embodies those things on a day to day basis? How do you do that in, in, in a large organization like that? The nuts and bolts of the process were that we went through a talent assessment process where we thought about who were our highest potential leaders, folks who could grow into kind of the highest levels of leadership at the organization. We identified those people and then we thought about, okay, so then, and then we sort of came up with the program, which I described. And I guess taking each of those in, in succession. So the classroom one is easiest. We wanted to partner with a reputable business school that provided executive education for people who were currently in full-time roles and in leadership roles. So we we partnered with NYU to to do some full day programs at intervals for our leaders. For the coaching, we partnered with an organization that has just kind of a stable of ICC accredited coaches, and they this company has an algorithm that allows people allows the leaders to sort of take a quiz about their style. You know what sort of what sort of coach they would like to have is it someone who's a little bit more like tactical practical is it someone who's dealing a little bit more with like the psychological emotional hurdles of being a leader you know so they take a quiz and then coaches kind of get matched with them through this algorithm and then we created a partnership with a different company another matching algorithm for internal folks and these identified leaders so anyone anyone at the organization could sign up to get a mentor and they would fill out a little survey that sort of said this is the function i'm in these are the challenges i'm you know interested in talking about these are some of the ways in which i identify across racial identity across you know gender demographic all of that sort of thing and then we had a little algorithm that helped match internal leaders those high potential 50 leaders with people 
who were more junior at the organization. And we made sure that the leaders were at least two levels above the person who was applying to be mentored. And so that was kind of like the nuts and bolts of each of those parts of the program. Yeah. How do you, something I always think about is, you know, because I've been at organizations that do a lot of classroom training and they have programs and but how do you actually build in the right incentives and rewards to make sure that actually becomes part of the culture? Are there things you can do beyond the actual sort of provision of resources or outside coaching and teaching that make sure people really take it to heart and it becomes one of the values of a, an organization? Yeah, it's a great question. One of our values at HelloFresh, which is the place where I built this specific program, is learning never stops. Learning never stops. And it was something that our global CEO put a lot of emphasis on. And we were kind of tasked with putting a little bit of meat behind that, right? Like, yeah, learning never stops. That's true. Every day we learn things as we're doing our jobs. But like, how do we create programs that people will actually be interested in where learning never stops can just be kind of embedded in that program? I would say, though, like you're asking me something slightly different, which is how do you get people to sort of take it seriously, right? Like, and that's a problem for, I think, all leaders and all L&D professionals. How do you get, how do you get, how do you make things sticky? How do you actually give people opportunities to practice the things that they learn in the classroom? Like, I think we struggle with this as MBAs, right? We learn a ton of stuff in two years or you know, three or four if you're doing part-time MBA, and then you don't have the opportunity or the time to practice those things after you've learned each one. You just kind of go out into the world and you sort of hope you remember the things you learn. And so what we tried to do within the organization was we... So two things I think were really important. One was we tried to give time between different learning modules for people to use practice and then debrief with us later the knowledge or skill or you know difficult conversation tactic that we had taught them but we also got managers of participants involved right and we said and we so we sent a separate like email drip campaign to the managers of these high potential leaders to the managers of anyone taking our first time manager training and we said this is what your report learned this week try to put this into practice Ask them about it in their one-on-one, in your one-on-one with them this week. Ask them how they used it. Like, try to, at every point, we were just trying to find multiple places where participants could get touch points around the topics. And I think if you can kind of infuse it into both the relationships and the management relationships that people have, but also give people time to practice stuff instead of overloading them with information and then expecting them to know it, those are kind of a couple of the ways I think they get embedded into the culture. Did the leadership at HelloFresh, like the C-level or the C-suite, buy, but did they buy into this idea of mentorship and coaching? Were they good mentors themselves? And the reason I ask that is because I, I often think like <laughs> organization, we can cut this out if this is like, you, you're going to say something you shouldn't. Because the reason I think Just all organizations, twice. yeah, because <laughs> I think all organizations reflect their leadership, right? So, and I often feel like in order to affect change, you need buy-in from the most senior person, whether that's within a division and it's VP level or SVP level. <laughs> I'm going to um, mark this down so we can. Yeah, cut. well, <laughs> I would love, I mean, I, this is something I would I've absolutely love to hear either in this conversation or offline from both of you about this, given yeah. your, both of your resumes. 
I will say that the leadership, this particular organization was very bought into our program. They were very bought into the data that showed that leaders who mentor and are coached and also learn stuff, you know, are become more effective leaders, have higher retention rates, more engaged employees, you know, the higher performing teams. There, there's a lot of science out there about it. So they were bought into that. And those, that was all science that I brought into my proposals, right? Whether or not they practiced it was a real range. <laughs> You know, I think that coming, you know, from tech startups, right, it's people talk about tech debt, right, all the time, you're moving fast, you need to problem solve. And I think that, you know, the concept of org debt is something that doesn't get quite as much shine, but the same thing is true, right? You need to get things done quickly. So establishing processes for lots of things and, you know, professional development, unfortunately, sometimes is part of that and managerial development on top of that is, so I think it's very easy to get caught up in what's urgent and some of these, you know, longer build things. It's, you really need to be intentional about, you know, carving out time for that and something I'd love to get your take on this. I feel like something that I've always really wrestled with as a leader across several startups is thinking about development and what skills they want to build and where they want to double down on successes, but the needs of keeping the lights on and growing the business, you know, hitting our lofty goals and where are the intersections there and where, where can you kind of cover all of your bases? And I, you know, I think it's a, it's, kind of a lifelong learning process as a manager on from my perspective, but love to hear maybe how you've coached managers or if you have kind of thoughts on that tension, particularly in, in startup speed, startup culture. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I feel like that's going to be a problem until the end of time is I've never heard it actually phrased that way, tech debt or like organizational debt. But yeah, I mean, there's a super dynamic tension between building something for long-term sustainability of your organization and like building something for the short-term sustainability of paying people's paying people every week, (laughs) right? Like you have to sort of, I think leaders struggles with that. Some are more aware of it than others. Like it's very encouraging for me to hear, you know, you say, I struggle with this idea that I, like, I know that we need to trade off some time to to develop managers and develop people professionally and therefore keep them engaged. But I also know we got to get stuff done and we get, you know, we got to get these campaigns out. We got to sell stuff. And that is a, that's a perpetual struggle. I mean, in my field, that is always what I'm fighting against. And I think kind of going back to all that science that I mentioned, you know, one of the things I've been able to bring as an MBA to kind of people ops or HR or learning and development L and D is this idea that I know that everything I have to do, everything I do has to support business goals. Like I can't just like, you know, blue sky ideate learning and development programs for no reason and then put them into place. Like I need to know, I need to know and be able to show like this is going to improve our retention and reduce our turnover costs. This is going to improve people's productivity and performance and reduce disengagement. Like I need to be able to show those things and they're kind of a little bit more longitudinal, you know, it, it's hard, it's harder to show that immediate data, but I need to be able to do that so that leaders like you who are making business decisions, Andy, are feel convinced that allowing leaders to take some time to build these other skills that will support their actual work is worthwhile. And so I think, I mean, you, you've hit it 
So it's always a struggle. And there are always going to be leaders who are like, this is not valuable. And there are always going to be leaders who are like, yes, it is. And <laughs> you kind of have to find the balance. And there's, it, but this is where I genuinely believe that you can make, you can affect change as long as you have buy-in from leadership. But there is also just a cultural element, which is almost like the DNA of a company imprinted from when that company was founded and through initial growth, where philosophy of the founders very much dictates who they hire early on and who they hire early on is a reflection of their values. And those values permeate every level of the organization as that company grows. And I've seen every spectrum of company at different stages where you have startup leaders who don't care about mentorship or coaching and only care about cutthroat, hitting numbers, hitting targets, irrespective of the cost to the culture of that business, as long as they're successful. And other businesses where from top down, from sea level down, there's an appreciation of the value of human capital. The best organizations I've worked at, like Goldman Sachs, invest in people, not just because it's like process and it's better for the business. They do it because I think philosophically they understand their business is a people business, both internally and externally. And you're going to get different flavors. So as you say, you know, you can bring in processes, you can incentivize, but I think it's really important for people to understand the true culture of that business as much as they can, because I think that's going to reflect attitudes towards mentorship and coaching, even allowing for all the processes and systems that are in place to try and enable that kind of thing. I mean, you're exactly right. I, this is totally anecdotal, but the organizations that I've been, I've worked with or been in that have early on recognized that value of human capital, the value of organizational development, professional development, learning and development had better cultures than the ones where I had to come in as a consultant, as an internal person and develop or retrofit that after the company had already scaled and grown and blown up, right? Like we won't name any names, but like there, there are companies in my resume that fit into both of those categories. And I would say like, I really enjoyed the ones that were in that former category because I could feel from the outset that the founders, senior leaders cared about it. Where in the second situation, I learned a ton because I knew how, I, I learned how to make a case for why we needed to build those things, but maybe it was a little too late. And it, it's sort of hard to know what that right spot is though. I think that's the trick. That's the real trick. Yeah. Being an outsider looking in, trying to determine what is the true attitude. Because uh, companies always talk about their values and their culture, but in reality, it's really hard to know until you get in there and you're like, oh, actually, they, I won't say which company. I had that experience with one where they talked about mentorship and coaching. And in reality, they kind of paid lip service to it, you know. And I think there was a lot of dissatisfaction of people at my level at that time, at the more junior levels or the entry level, with what had been promised versus the reality. And I think that's the thing, you know, sort of. Really knowing is really difficult, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> agree. Thank agree. You for that Plus answer. one. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> you talked about something, though. It's interesting because you talked about, obviously, the how you implemented that program. You shared with us your experience of the importance of influence internally. Can you talk to us about that a little bit? What skills... Did you exercise in order to get these initiatives up and running in an organization, especially that didn't have that muscle, you know, that memory muscle of doing what you talked about? So I think influence is probably one of the most important leadership core competencies 
that anyone should have and is not always codified in like the competency frameworks of organizations. I really push it as one of the ones that should be included because I think it encompasses a lot of, I think actually both soft and hard skills. So when you ask me like, how do I, how do, how does one influence? I mean, I think it is a combination of building relationships with people and understanding what they need or want or what their challenges are and coming to the table with some kind of solution or at least ideating coming even with like an empathetic ear. You know, some leaders feel very isolated in their challenges and they feel like nobody cares and nobody listening to them. So if you can build relationships where you establish yourself as a person who's interested in helping leaders solve their challenges or problems, that's one piece of influence, right? That's It's like the soft side. I think the hard side is something that I've mentioned earlier, which is what like data can you bring to bear to support something that you are trying to push or move forward? So I think, again, like with people ops, HR, learning and development, like that's a little bit harder to come by than if you're in marketing or engineering or, you know, whatever acquisition. But like, I think it's important to understand what the business cares about. What are their metrics? What are their OKRs? How can what you're doing solve solve decision makers problems and also be supported by any data out there? from comparable organizations or people science or whatever. And so um, I think using a combination of those two things, I think both of which I actually honed at business school, or at least under like began to understood and understand better at business school, because pre business school, I knew nothing about any of this. I think like bringing those two things to bear can really make you a very influential person at the organization, even if you don't have a title, and even if you don't have decision making power. And in my case, I've had sometimes had both of those sometimes had neither and so i think that's i think that's what you're asking <laughs> yeah you've just described product management right which is like you have yeah. literally no direct reports unless you've managed junior product managers but you have no direct influence over anybody beyond trying to understand what motivates them and how you get them to do something and then you know try and hurt those cats it's really interesting but you talked about data you shared with us a really good story about you shared with us a really good story about your experience using data actually to make a case for the role you took up. Fresh, can you share sort of details about that and how you kind of helped management understand the importance of your role and function? Sure. Yeah. I so I I joined HelloFresh by way of acquisition. So I was working at a startup and based in Boulder, Colorado, called Green Chef. We were a very small say like 300 million, 100, 100 to 300 million dollar revenue, organic meal kit business that HelloFresh acquired in order to create a more premium offering. And that happened in 2018. And I was on the, I found out later, I was on RIF list, reduction in force list that is created by acquisition teams in the wake of acquisitions and mergers. And I just didn't want to lose my job. Like I really, I really liked what I was doing, right? Which was, you know, learning and development, setting up performance management, you know, supporting the organizational design, you know, growing the business sustainably with talent management strategies. And so I kind of, you know, I did some research. I looked on LinkedIn, who's on this talent acquisition team? Okay, it's there's a bunch of these MBA ones from Sloan. There's a UNC MBA on this acquisition team. I'm just going to put together a presentation 
that shows the value of my position and why there is a return on investment of paying my salary to continue doing this job for the organization at large. And so I noted that there was not really a built out function like this at, an, at HelloFresh, which at that time was many times larger than Great Chef. And I said, okay, I'm just going to go into this meeting where they're going to, you know, they're going to sit me across the table. And this happened. You know, one of the team members in a three piece suit sat across and said, oh, so what do you do here? You know, expecting me to be like, I'm in HR and I just help people, you know. Or, this is like live, like a real life office space scenario. What would you say you do here? <laughs> what would you say you do here? And I was like, well, let me show you this presentation. So I throw this deck up in this little conference room and I'm like, listen, here's the top line impact and the bottom line impact of holding on to my job. Like, here's how much money I can save you. You know, if we project out based on, you know, this, these staffing numbers, you know, these are guesses, you know, my assumptions were X, Y, and Z around how much you're going to grow, how many employees work at a distribution center, how many work in corporate. But ultimately, you need me. (laughs) And, you know, this is some of the stuff that Gallup and Wiley say about having a person who's dedicated to employee engagement, culture, and learning and development side an organization. This is what happens to organizations who have a real focus on manager training. This is what happens to organizations who turn over a ton of people. This is the cost of what a low-level employee costs to, to replace and what a C-level person costs to replace, which is something like three times their salary. And so, you know, I modeled that all in. You know, I don't know what's happening with my job, but I think you should keep me. Here's the deck, you know, and I left them a copy, a hard copy of it when we still printed things. And yeah, I got to keep my job. And I found out later from the acquisition team, they were like, we were definitely going to let you go. But you came in guns blazing. Like, we did not know that you had the education or like business savvy that you showed us in that meeting. And so we're so glad that we didn't. And it was really cool. Like, I felt very good about that. It's a great story because I feel like I probably would have curled up into a ball and died. You know, be like, oh, let me go. And it, make, it makes me think so much. You know, we kind of we talked we kind of talked about this before. Like, you know, so many people who are going to be listening to this are you know people who've kind of post MBA move will, are looking to move from like professional services into tech or something where you know you're making a transition and you're also probably packaging your experience for people for whom that experience is in primary right. So you're kind of translating what you can do in their language. Any kind of high level principles or advice you would have for people who are maybe not that exact same argument that you were making with your presentation, but for someone who's trying to think strategically about how to package what they do through the, through, through the framework of, of someone with a different background like that instance. Yeah. I mean, I think this is, this, that's a great question. I mean, just all of us, I think we were all the three of us and many of our peers were trying to do this exact thing at the end of business school. And then throughout the last decade plus, I would say, one thing I've learned is always like always approach any opportunity as like a problem solving opportunity. So like in sales, you know, pe- people, I feel like this is a perfect example. Like sales is often stigmatized as this sort of like sort of unsavory, <laughs> part, you know, part of an organization where people are just kind of like sketchy and car salesmen. And, but like when I, t- I, I have a few friends who are excellent at sales, they're in advertising sales and, 
tech sales. And they basically are like, we're just problem solvers. All we do is like listen for the problem and then figure out what in our portfolio of things we're selling can solve that problem. But that's what we're doing. We're not just like pushing products onto people that they don't want, that they shouldn't pay for. Like, And I think that's true if you're looking for a job, if you're selling something, if you are trying to keep your job in the wake of an acquisition, it's like, what is the problem that you uniquely can solve with your skill set, your role, your product, whatever it is. And I think that if you just come, if you come to every conversation with curiosity about what's the problem, and then you think, take an inventory, like a private inventory of what you can do, you'll always find something that you can do that solves a problem for someone. It's just a matter of like actually coming to to the table with the curiosity to find the problem as opposed to just being like, here I am. Like, you know, if you, if I build it, they will come, you know, it's, it, I don't know. I, it sounds so obvious, but it's taken me so long to kind of understand that. And so much has opened up for me as a result. I'd love that story. It's like, it reminds me, you know, there's a, I remember I heard on a podcast once about, you know, marketing and, you know, you think about your marketing org is, you know, I've got at, my acquisition team and my retention team. But if you kind of flip it on its head and think about it from the customer perspective, just the way you, you know, you're describing it and you think about marketing is fundamentally as an act of generosity, right? You're, you've got this pain, you've got this problem. How can I help? You know, that really turns it on its head in such a more useful way of, of thinking about things. I love that. Yeah. It's an act of generosity. I mean, it's sort of true, right? Like if you think about it, I mean, it's, you know, we can call it value added, you know, call, what, how do we add value or how do we, but it's like here, I want to give you this thing, like hire me or keep me or buy my thing. Cause I, because like this, I will give you a benefit. And I think that is actually true. Like that's what we learned in marketing 101, right? With professor Grayson, like just, you know, what's the benefit or delight or whatever. I did not have <laughs> Professor Grayson. We did not learn anything in Marketing 101, unfortunately. And I, that's why I did not go into marketing. But it's funny you mentioned that because you, you talk about selling yourself, which I, we, talk, we spoke to Kelsey Rector about this, the importance of selling, the importance of business, from a business development perspective, but also yourself. But you, you shared with us a story, which I think is a great story, which encapsulates a lot of what you've just spoken about, where you got a role in HR, but in a very unconventional way. And I think to Andy's question, I think it's like a very inspirational story for someone who's thinking about making the leap from one area into another without necessarily on paper being the cookie cutter qualified candidate. Can you share with us a little bit about what that experience was like, what you did and how you succeeded in making that leap? Sure. I, so the background, my background is that I am a non, I was a non-traditional MBA candidate. So I came to Kellogg from field of journalism and, you know, it took me a few years after, after we graduated, you know, I did some management consulting and some innovation consulting and it took me a few years to find my way back to startups, but I had never held an HR role and I didn't have an HR qualification certification or any of that. And at the time I was working at the University of Colorado, I was working at the business school there and doing a lot of networking among startups to help to help the startups figure out how to hire talent from the university. And the university was trying to figure out how do we get more of our undergraduates into startups because that's very sexy and that's what they want to do right now. And so I was networking with lots of HR professionals in the startup world in Colorado. And I kind of realized like, 
oh, I actually would like to do this at a startup, like figure out how to acquire and retain and develop talent, but inside the actual startup. And so when I realized the university pace culture was not really for me, I applied for a couple of HR roles. And one of them was at Green Chef that we've talked about now. And the leader there, you know, sort of said, well, you you don't have any HR background, but like, I really like that you have all these ideas about how to do things differently. You clearly have a passion for developing people's careers, clearly have a passion for workforce development from your other roles. I'm just going to throw you into the mix for the case study. And, and, you know, just it's with the CEO and the chief of staff and me, chief people officer. And I went in there and I just said, you know, I'm just going to approach this like a innovation consult design consulting problem, like a design problem, you know, what, how might we do things differently inside Green Chef that allows us to retain people in a different way? How might we keep people in a world where startup talent just kind of is always moving around to different startups, but not staying very long in one place? And I presented that and I was up against another more traditional organizational development HR person. And I ended up getting the job and, you know, sort of what unfolded unfolded, which is I got to do it all the way up at HelloFresh US. But I kind of just took a shot in the dark. I did not feel, I guess I didn't feel like I was going to be super disappointed if I didn't get it because I'd never done HR. But I also felt like if I didn't try to do this pivot, knowing what I knew about business, knowing what I knew about people and their development, and knowing what I knew about my own capabilities, like I would always regret it. And so I don't know, it's a cool story. Like, I mean, it, it took one leader to really realize that I had the potential and not look just at my track record. But we need those leaders out there. Be that leader. Yeah, totally. I think that's the thing, isn't it? I think the one that's, again, that's the, I mean, back to that DNA, who is that leader that can recognize talent and nurture talent and understand it isn't just the black and white on your resume, it's the person behind that. I think that's the future of talent management and talent in general. I really do. I again, it's anecdotal, but like you know, the people I've hired or worked with in the past who didn't have a traditional HR background or even traditional startup background or traditional business background were always the ones who were hungry, right? Like they wanted to learn more, didn't have a chip on their shoulder, they weren't like this is beneath me. Because they were like, I don't know how to do this. Like, I am just a smart human and, and I just want to learn and I want to approach problem. I want to approach things with a problem solving, generous, you know, curious lens. I may be making this statistic up, but I think 95% of people leave their job because of their manager, right? And that's almost definitely a made up statistic. So we can. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's up there. I mean, it's up there. I think it's but like it's, more than less than 95. <laughs> yeah. There's a very big range. It's somewhere in that range. But I think to that point, I think, you know, we talked about, Andy, you mentioned this, like the organizational debt. And I wonder if, you know, we've seen this focus on hiring by startups and these chaotic environments. And I do wonder if it kind of feeds on itself where, especially now, and I don't say this in a derisory manner, because I think there's a lot of derision about Gen Z and millennials wanting to feel, be feel, to feel valued in their workplace. I, I can understand that sentiment. But I often think because of that organizational debt that you mentioned, Andy, that isn't felt and there's a lack of coaching and mentorship. And so the chaotic environment actually encourages people to shift between different companies very quickly. 
there isn't loyalty because there's not good management. And so people move around and it just kind of exacerbates itself, right? Sort of people become very transactional in nature because managers are transactional because no one has any loyalty. It's like the sort of the Tinder generation where people I've been told by people who actually date. <laughs> You know, just constantly swiping right. And I think the same mentality maybe pervades a lot of startup culture. Right is yes. <laughs> I have no I think left is no. <laughs> yeah, we miss that. We miss that generation, unfortunately, or fortunately. <laughs> Don't ask me. I'm married. Happily married. I mean, this Jen. is a whole topic for a whole other podcast. And something I've chatted with leaders about a lot is loyalty. You know, I mean, loyalty is a weird word for it, but. You know, I mean, we talk about it in many other different ways, like employee retention and tenure and that kind of thing. But I think, yeah, there's definitely a generational thing happening here. I think we three are kind of, we kind of uniquely bridge it in a way, right? Like we, we were brought up by people who are like, you know, started in the, you know, the mail room and ended up CEO, right? Like, I mean, literally there are people, parents, parents of people that I know who did that. And today it's much more fluid and organizations need to start thinking about how do we grow people while they're here, help them gain the skills and systems experience to be great leaders elsewhere. Maybe sometime they'll come back, maybe not, but we just have to, I mean, how do we get both get value from them while they're here and give them value as they move on? It, it, it's like a totally different mindset shift for leaders and it's really hard it's really hard people do not like it they do not like shifting to that mindset <laughs> yeah it's so, like the old the old adage you know the worry what if we train people so well that they leave it's like well what if we don't train them and they stay exactly right yeah that's i love I mean, that adage yeah and i've seen that first time i mean i mentioned it earlier, i've seen that firsthand of this notion of you mustn't train someone in case they do your job better than you. It's kind of a bizarre mentality. I think it's a very old school mentality. And again, I think you'll see, I'll be born out of the numbers, the best companies who survive are the antithesis of that, right? But you mentioned, you touched on this, you touched on this earlier on with, you mentioned that when you did your presentation, when you were on the riff list, you talked about the costs of not having a dedicated resource. Now, I don't expect you to remember the numbers, but what, in, in sort of terms of those big buckets, what are the costs of not having someone dedicated to learning and development, to mentorship and coaching? How does that impact a business? Yeah. So I, as I mentioned, I approached it from a top line perspective and a bottom line perspective. So, you know, from the top line perspective, there's lots of data that shows companies that have a really engaged workforce who have high scores on manager support, who have high scores in, you know, this company's invested in my development are actually performing, outperforming their peers in whatever industry they're in. And so you can really connect high levels of engagement, development, investment with productivity performance, right? And performance as an organization, not just like individuals' performance. And then from the bottom line, the cost of turnover is simply too hard to ignore. I mean, if you like I said, I mean, I found a statistic that it costs, it can cost up to three times the annual salary of a C-level person to replace them, right? Because think about it, search firms, you know, the amount of time, the amount, number of people you're interviewing, the, the amount of like lost productivity time of the C-suite that has to interview that new person, you know, like whatever the thing is. 
it can cost up to three times that and also lost time with that seat empty. So, you know, you model and you lose one of those people and, you know, you, you model in that you lose like a certain percentage of people at each level over time and what the cost of turnover there is and replacement. And you got a case for a, you know, six figure, like between 100 and $200,000 L&OD professional, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's like the math totally there. And so that's, ba- you know, that's, that's a very simple way. It's fascinating, actually, now you mentioned that. I remember there was a, uh, you know, I and many other consultants would work on a case when I was a consultant for a client who I won't name, who would just perennially be doing these HR consulting cases of trying to figure out why their retention rate was so low. Because to your point, the cost of the brain drain, having to try and find people, the search process, hiring them, onboarding them, training them, and then losing them in a very short period of time is so great. And they, you know, I can't remember the numbers again, but as you mentioned, I think, it's like a customer. It's far easier to retain a customer than it is to acquire a new one. And I guess it's the same principle here with your talent, right? So if you want to retain the best people as much as you can. Yeah. I mean, it's a great, you know, great call out to like all the knowledge, the knowledge loss and continuity loss that happens. Like that's, there's a cost there that I don't even know if that's modeled into that, the brain drain piece, but yeah, it's staggering. So something that has come out of this conversation is very clear to me is you've talked about a lot of different pieces of helping an organization understand how it can help management grow, retain talent. Talk to me about that in terms of what HR really is. Because I, like a lot of people, have a conception about when you hear HR, you know, and it's, I think historically there's a certain perception which you've challenged yourself. Help people understand when they're listening to this, what is truly the function of HR beyond some of the legal and compliance aspects when you're onboarding or, you know, when you're kind of managing policy. Like, how do you think about HR and that function on a day-to-day basis, how it's important to an organization. Yeah, I have a lot to say on this topic. You know, I, you very rarely will you hear people call, especially in the startup and high growth sectors, will you hear teams being called HR teams anymore? You know, they're people ops teams or humans teams or the people team, or there's lots of different names for it now, because I think that HR has a pretty bad name. I mean, it's pretty, it's a, it's sort of like a, it's the butt of a lot of jokes inside of organizations. I mean, I mean, I w- watch today still on Netflix. I was watching this really show about a female lawyer trying to make partner at this firm and she's Asian. So I watched it anyway, it was really bad. And the HR people were just like such a laughing stock in, the, and it made me cringe because I do think that people often think of HR as like, where you go to complain about harassment or like, where, you know, like where you go when your paycheck's not right, you know, but actually, there's this whole side of HR that, that I feel extremely excited to sort of be on a, a, like, be part of, which is around this, the age old problem of organizations trying to get the best out of their people. And how do you, what, you know, how do you create strategies around that? How do you, humans are messy. Humans are complicated. Every human is different. And it's such an interesting problem to solve. It's not just like, how do we get the best dog food to the best dog? You know, n- no offense to those people who are trying to do that. Like, but for me, it's like, how do we engage someone who was born in 1996 and someone who was born in 1976? You know, like those two people kind of want different things from their work culture, their colleagues, their you know, their workflow, like what they, you know, their family life. And I like, those are super interesting problems 
that I think really impact businesses, you know, you know, as we just talked about the top and bottom line. And so I think that the leaders that recognize that talent is the only differentiator that anyone really has across any business, like any business can make, you know, blender bottles, but it's the business that makes blender bottles with incredibly engaged employees who want to figure out how to make this cap not stick so much. You know, it's like, that's the one that's going to win. And I think like, that's, what's really cool is that like, talent is this like piece of differentiation, competitive differentiation for organizations that I get to work on that I think is really exciting. It's, I think it's fascinating hearing you say that because I genuinely believe every business is a people business. And I learned this actually when I used to work in finance where we had technology to enable trading. But if something went wrong, at the end of the day, you had to get on the phone to a person and hope that the relationship was good enough. You could unwind a trade or make sure that it didn't cost each counterparty too much. And even in technology today, yes, technology is a great enabler and who knows what impact AI is going to have, but every people is a people business, right? If you're working with engineers or designers or data scientists, you're trying to unlock their creativity and motivation to create good things and things that will create value for an end user. Even if they're working for a business themselves, an enterprise, still a human being using your technology. And I think sometimes it's easy to lose sight of that. I think it's the most important factor of any business when it comes to thinking about how you manage that business. I would love to know what the impact of AI is going to be on the people side of running. I, I don't know what the answer to that is, but I do know that there are so many permutations of being a human. <laughs> I can't imagine that any robot is ever going to be able to pro be programmed to understand all of them from like an emotional, psychological, you know, whatever standpoint, like maybe I'm wrong. I could be totally wrong. And in a hundred years, people will laugh at me, but I think that's like the one kind of complex, we're like such complex machines, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I've, I, it's fascinating, isn't it? Cause I left trading because AI driven algos were eating my job. Right. But so are there as many traders today as there were 40 years ago when it was open outcry? No, because there's more computers. But actually, computerization opened up different markets that increased overall the number of people working in financial services. So I think when people sit here and say, well, all these jobs are going to be eaten, yeah, but there's going to be lots of new jobs created for people because we can work on things that add more value and things that require humanity to be involved and have involvement in those touch points. So I don't have as pessimistic a view as many people. I definitely think you'll see industries change, you know, sort of night and day, and you'll see perhaps long tails of jobs. I spoke to a lawyer the other day talking about junior associates. You know, they're going to be a risk because you no longer need a junior associate working 100 hours a week churning out documents. But that commoditization has been happening in, a, for, in, a, in law for a long time. So, yes, it's going to have a big impact. I don't think it's going to be as cataclysmic as – people perceive today but maybe i'm wrong maybe know. those they can work a more humane 75 hours a week instead of that hundred. <laughs> you mean go part-time is that what you're saying they yeah. can go part-time <laughs> bankers hours fingers crossed for all those juniors at the northwestern law this has been an awesome discussion andy is there anything else you want to dive into before we move on to our quick fire section no, that was pretty good. I think, you know, one one thing that struck me, it's interesting, you know, you mentioned that you're, you know, one of your formative mentors, you know, you never really said that out loud. And I think that, you know, that's definitely true among a lot of influences and informal mentors, you know, in my own career. 
On the flip side, you know, one of the things that I learned, you know, in, in kind of given managerial feedback, the hacks I learned is that it's really helpful to be explicit to say, I'd like to give you some feedback before you give them feedback. And that's kind of been one of my one of my biggest learnings over the past few years in terms of getting better at, you know, developing folks on my teams. Any kind of top of mind tactical tips and tricks like that for leaders of getting better at, you know, pick one, coaching, mentoring, giving feedback, developing their teams that that you've seen kind of move the needle for folks in terms of tips and tricks? Oh. <laughs> It's such a big topic. I mean, I've given like three hour workshops on like giving feedback and then another three hours on receiving it, you know, so I'm just can trying to think the, about... Can we get the 30 second TikTok version? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I would, be TikTok famous. I would be TikTok famous if I could boil it down to 30 seconds. I think, oh gosh, I mean, I do think there there's a time for coaching and there's a time for feedback. And I mean, mentoring aside, which again is just like, is sort of sharing your experience with a thing. If someone comes to you with a situation and sort of telling stories, but not necessarily giving feedback or coaching. So I I think that there, there are times when a behavior needs correcting or a mistake is made and a process needs amending where you want to give direct feedback. And then there are times when things are just a little more ambiguous and the person isn't actually is coming to you for an answer but maybe what you actually need to do is just ask them a bunch of open-ended questions so that they can get to the answer themselves and i know that's not very specific but i do think those there's some i actually have a list of things that like you should give feedback on and a list of things you should coach in my training but like but i do think that a really good leader will listen for which one is needed in that moment And that to me feels like, yeah, the distinction between someone who is a great manager and like a good manager is someone who can say, okay, this person just needs feedback right now on that thing, that little baby thing that they did wrong or, or like the way they showed up at that meeting. But if someone comes and says, I just, I can't figure out this thing. It's questions you should ask. Like what, you know, what is it that's challenging you right now? Or what would be the best outcome? How do you get there? Asking questions like that rather than like, this is what you should do. Because then you're not really developing professionals to move into the workforce and take your role one day. Do you have a favorite open-ended question that you like to use to, to maybe open up the conversation, maybe to, to you know, put the person at ease or to, to maybe start your diagnostic? <laughs> I like to ask, what do you think the real problem is here? So, so... <laughs> If someone has, yeah, so-and-so is being a total jerk and like won't do this thing. And I just can't, we can't get anything done until they meet that deadline. They just never meet the, what's the real, what's the real problem here? Like, does it, does the person not understand the expectations? Is the person chronically late? Is this person overworked and like, we need to redistribute their workload? What's the real problem? Them being a jerk is not the real problem. (laughs) Yeah, getting to that that second level order is always key, isn't it? So I think we'll go into our final segment. You know, we like to close with with four quick fire questions for our guests. And maybe first off, what factor has been most important to your success as a business leader? I, I think approaching problems with curiosity and humility, knowing that I don't always know the answer. 
because I usually get to a better answer with collaboration and asking questions than I would if I just tried to answer the question. <laughs> yeah, I think that I, that truly is. And I, you know, I talked about that a little bit earlier on when I talked about tr- changing careers and stuff. Awesome. What would you tell yourself from 10 years ago to avoid given what you know now? And we're not talking restaurants in New York here either, by the way. <laughs> I mean, this one's so easy for me because I would tell myself, like, you're not an imposter just because you didn't come from a traditional consulting, banking, marketing background doesn't make you doesn't mean you can't ever learn how to do this. And I think I would have avoided a lot of grief by hearing that from my future self. <laughs> what don't most people understand about either a people ops leadership role or an advisory role? Yeah, I think talent is the most important competitive differentiation that a organization has. And most of, and I guess the second thing I would say is the problems that organizations have or leadership teams have are very similar, no matter the size of companies, industry, stage of growth. It all comes back to some human, some very human things and some very human interactions that can be helped and fixed and coached. But these have been problems people have been dealing with for a long time, and and the answer's out there. <laughs> what one thing do you strongly believe that most successful people do not? I would say success can be defined in many different ways. I don't know. That, tra- the tra- that maybe status and money, all of those things aren't necessarily the things that it would make someone feel successful. Because I grew up thinking that, got those things, and then was like, oh, am I successful? (laughs) I guess I am by most standards, but like, what else do I want in my life that would make me feel like I had a well-lived? So, so yeah, I don't even know what you mean by the word successful, Dan, in that question. (laughs) I suspect most successful people do believe that, right? Or at least most smart, successful people do believe that. Like, do you... If you had to pick number two, and I know we're putting you on the spot with this, what's something else that might surprise people that you believe? I just want to say, I don't agree with you on that. But, but okay, what do I believe? What, do I, what, would, pe- what would surprise people that I believe have now having achieved success? This is, not, this is going to be controversial. I don't think that being a woman has necessarily been detrimental to my career at startups and high growth companies in the way that it can be talked about in the sort of the the cultural dialogue. Sometimes I feel like because of the way that I look and identify, I actually kind of stand out and might get a platform that I might not otherwise have. I think for sure we're underrepresented as founders and leaders. And I so appreciate the efforts of those who came before me to get me to this place where I am able to say, like, I have an MBA from a top school, you know, I had a leadership position. Immigrants like me. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) But I also think that sometimes I've been able to leverage that to help me. And I, so I don't know, I feel like that's kind of controversial to say, but that's my experience. 
Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, it's funny. Just on your note of success, it's interesting to me. The people who have always eschewed this notion of money and wealth being not being a sign of success are the people who have attained it. And I always remember my mentor and manager at ABN AMRO, who after his second divorce and having had his bank account drained and sold his Swiss ski chalet, told me, money isn't everything. It's not a sign of success or happiness. Focus on the things that give you joy. And I was like, you're only saying that because you've, you've tons no, of money. No, it's super annoying. I think like what I'm trying to say with it, maybe I'm not saying it that well. And you feel free to leave this in. I'm well, not trying yeah. to pick you up. Just, I think it's interesting because I think you've got to get to that point to be like, oh, that didn't bring me happiness. That's that fair. didn't That's change fair. my... I, so I'm not criticizing you. I think it is... I think actually in some regards, it's kind of reinforcing that point of like what defines success. And there are those de- definitions that are, I think... The, you know, I love this kind of locus of control, intrinsic and external. And I think some definitions of success are these external definitions of comparison. But it's like, what do you define as success? And for me, currently, it's financial freedom, but freedom of time. And I think personal experiences have driven that. And I'd much yeah. rather have choice of what I do on a day-to-day basis than being dictated to by someone else. I think that's, I know from your own experience, I think you and I are quite philosophically aligned on that front. Yeah, I think, I mean, if that's kind of what you're, if that's what you're saying, Andy, then I guess I do agree with that to some extent. Like, I guess my experience is I attained things that I always thought I wanted and didn't feel particularly successful, you know, ended up in a lot of therapy about it, (laughs) you know, and what's wrong with me, you know? And so I think that's maybe where I'm going with it more is like, yeah, yeah, I don't know, like, I don't like really know. And, but I have the luxury of saying that because I did do all the things, you know, I, I became a thing at a place that people know, you know, and so, and that's what my parents wanted and they were immigrants and all the things. But I think like, I was confused when I got to success and felt like, is this what they're talking about? You know, because like, that was like a... That was like a thing for me. Less like money doesn't matter. Like, of course, that, that, you know, it's more like, I don't understand why I don't feel the way I thought I would when I got here. <laughs> yeah, I, su- I, I suspect, and it'd be really interesting to track this, but that perceptions around what success is change for everyone. And I think eventually you sort yeah. of realize that's true. Yeah, it's fair. That's yeah, fair. that's the life design ethos that it's the, you know, we've talked about this but it's the journey is the destination and you have to sort of enjoy <laughs> the process yep. and you know dan your point intrinsic extrinsic success and and kind of how you take the things out of your control at uh, you know the grand assault totally. yep we 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 actually literally could do another podcast about this i think it's a fascinating topic to talk about in terms of how do you define success right and i think Andy, as you mentioned it changes depending on where you're at in your career but i am conscious of time so in order to wrap things up, are there any, it's been a really great discussion. Are there any blogs, books, podcasts that you like and would like to share with our audience or any tools that you use day to day that you think you'd like to recommend? Yes. I really like Adam Grant's podcast, Rethinking, and the Happiness Lab, which is hosted by Dr. Lori Santos, who's a Yale professor, has a mass open online course about how, what makes a human happy. I think fascinating stuff and she brings a lot of science into it tools that i use i i like that book design your work life by the d school professors at stanford and i for teams that are struggling leadership teams that are struggling 
I am a huge fan of the five dysfunctions of a team. Patrick Lencioni. It's better if it's facilitated by someone, but the book itself is very enlightening for leaders who are struggling to get their teams to function better. So those are kind of, I guess, my like top things I'm working with right now. Yeah, that's great. That's awesome. And currently you're working as a fractional leader. How can people get in touch with you? Do you have a website, email address that you'd like to share? So that if people want to learn more about what you do, they can. Yes, I have a website that has both my creative work and a little mention of my personal work. It's jenyi.me, J-E-N-N-Y-E. Check it out. If you want to get in touch with me for HR purposes, you can do it there. Or if you want to see my stand-up comedy or writing performances, they're also on there. So there's a whole other dimension to me that you don't even know from this podcast that I'd be happy to share with you on that website. That's awesome. Thank you so much for joining us. This has been an amazing discussion. As always, Jen Yi, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. And that's a wrap on this week's episode of Adventures in Growth. Thanks for joining us, and we hope you were able to find some inspiration for your own journey. You can subscribe to our newsletter to receive fresh weekly content that deconstructs success in tech leadership by heading over to adventuresingrowth.co. Until next time, go have an adventure.